Hey, everybody. Welcome to our final episode of the Psalms season of Sunday School, a Bible study podcast brought to you by The Pillar. I'm your host and a student of Sunday School, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by our uh, our Sunday School teacher and Psalm Sage himself. Oh, well done. <laughs> Dr. I saw the, the, the Psalm Sage cranking. himself, Dr. Scott Powell. It's a shame that I only came up with that in this, the final episode. But Scott, we've been re- really on a journey through the Psalms this season, and it's been, for me, very fruitful, and I hope it's been fruitful for you listeners. And this is our last uh, episode of the Psalms. So what are we going to do and talk about today, my friend? So today we're going to be uh, talking about the, the last chunk of Psalms, which we call Book 5 which is really the Psalms that have to do with the question, now what? Uh, So, Scott, just to kick things off, we're going to have a reading from uh, The Pillar's own Dr. Ed Condon, and what are we going to hear from Ed this week? Yeah, so uh, uh, Ed, not Psalm, Ed is going to be reading Psalm 107. Okay, we'll be right back after Psalm 107 from Ed Condon. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble, and gathered in from the lands, from east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their heads down with hard labor, they fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. And they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word, and it healed them, and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell his deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight, They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to the desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell. They establish a city to live in, they sow fields and plant vineyards, and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, 
he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low, through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Hey everybody, we're back after that very lengthy psalm, Psalm 107, read to us by the Pillar Stone, Ed Condon. And Scott, is that psalm in some way representative of Book 5 of the of the Psalter? Is that why we began with it? Tell us. Well, what we've been doing this uh, season, which I, I, I like, because the psalms are so vast. There's, so ma- there's 150 psalms in the Psalter. So I think the best way to kind of wrap our heads around is by looking at the seams, right? So if there's five books, it's nice to look at kind of the board. I, I always think of it like a jigsaw puzzle, right? And I like to put together the corner pieces first. So Psalm 107 is the first uh, psalm of book five. So that's kind of where we're going to start today. Cool. Let's do it. And actually, we're not going to start there. We're going to back it up a little bit. I want to take a little bit of a, a broader view. So and just a reminder, kind of a quick recap. We've been looking at the Psalms kind of as a microcosm of Israel's history. Right. And that's important to remember. There's five books. And so this is. Uh, the Torah in song, in a certain sense, a kind right? of an epic, a thematic epic through the a thematic history, epic. through yeah. the history of Israel. I think that's right. Yeah, and so we've seen how uh, they kind of walk us through the rise and the grandeur of the Davidic kingdom in Book One and Two, right? Uh, we saw the collapse of that kingdom and the exile in Book Three, or sort of a reflection on them, right? Um, a reassurance that God is still King despite this terrible situation in Book Four. And then we're sort of left with this lingering question for the Jewish people, right? Which is what will happen now? And so if you if you take this epic, right? If you've been singing through the story of salvation history, how is it going to end? And and here, here's what we have to kind of begin with the consideration of. And this is why I'm grateful for our Christian faith and for, for our Catholic faith. And in no way is this meant to be disparaging toward our Jewish brothers and sisters. But if you think of the nature of the Old Testament which again is is emblematic in a certain sense in the Psalms, it ends, so if the Psalms are walking us through, we had this kingdom, it was awesome, we had these visible manifestations, these signs of God's sovereignty, his love for us, he was present in the king, he was present in the glory cloud, his presence in the temple, there were all these symbols. We abused those things, we neglected God, we broke the covenant, we sinned, we were hauled off into exile. And now as the Old Testament begins to kind of wrap up, Israel is allowed to come home, right? They come home from exile, they resettle the land, they'll eventually rebuild another temple. It's much smaller than the first one. They don't have a Davidic king, they have some princes and governors, and they never really see God's presence come back. And so the Psalms sort of leave us with the sense of like, okay, well, we're home, we've come back. Is, is that it? Like, is that the end of the story? Like, we've been praying for deliverance. We came home. Okay, that, that's the end of the story, right? And it, it's, it's an unsatisfactory ending, I guess, right? Um, and so the Psalms are, book five is asking this question, what is God going to do next? Because built into the whole Psalter is this kind of fundamental promise of restoration. And what you see is that book five, or what we'll see, is that book five holds the highest concentration of what are called the Psalms of praise, right? Praise Psalms. And so um, if you remember, I think we've said this a couple of times, the whole of the Psalter sort of moves from this lament to praise, right? From darkness to light, or, you know, to take some of the language of the prophets like Ezekiel from death to resurrection, 
That's actually the movement of things, right? Mm -hmm. So the theme of book five is that God is actually going to reign as Israel's king again, Mm -hmm. that this is not the end of the story, Mm -hmm. right? The so what actually has an object, right? And so I want to, I want to begin by actually just taking a quick look at two other Old Testament passages that I think give some flesh and blood to what the Psalter is doing here. Okay. And we've kind of visited these before a little bit in, in previous seasons of Sunday school, but I want to look really quick at Saul. I'm sorry, at the book of Isaiah. And there's two quick passages. I just want to look at Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 52. Part of why I want to do this is that these passages occur frequently in the liturgy in the Catholic mass. So they're, they're important for our own liturgical tradition. They show up a lot and Psalm four, I'm sorry, Isaiah 40 it's important because it begins with a promise of hope for the people of Israel, which is exactly what we're talking about, right? Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Okay, pause there. Yeah, so this is good. This is what is called the book of comfort. And it's called the book of comfort because it literally begins with the words comfort, right? So quick thing on Isaiah. We've talked about this again in previous seasons. Bad news, good news. Bad news, Isaiah 1 through 39. You guys have sinned. You've broken the covenant. You've wandered far from God. You've done all these terrible things. There's going to be consequences, right? Um, Isaiah 39 actually ends with this prophecy that the kingdom of Judah is going to be taken off in captivity into Babylon, right? Things are really, really bad. And so Isaiah 39 kind of closes on this really ominous note, which is prophesying and reflecting what book three of the Psalter is doing. Things are bad. We're going into exile. This is, this is horrible. But then Isaiah 40 begins with this promise of restoration, right? Meaning that after this time of exile and the captivity, God's going to restore us, which is what you just read, right? So be comforted. It's cool. Comfort, comfort. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Your warfare is ended. Um, and then it goes on in verse three. It says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every hill, valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. Uneven ground will become level and the rough places a plain. So, okay, we got to kind of hear this prophecy with with Hebrew ears, right? In the, in the culture. So the voice of this messenger in Isaiah 40 is out in the wilderness. He's in the desert and he's announcing prepare the way, right? Prepare the way of the Lord, which we've, we've heard before, right? So what's implied in this message, and again, this is where I know many of us have heard this passage a hundred times, but what we have to recognize is what's presumed in this. And if it's a prophecy, a messenger is crying out, um, prepare the way from the, for the Lord. What does it mean about where the Lord is right now? Or is not, I suppose. He's somewhere else. He's somewhere He's else. He's not with us. He's not with us. That, that's the implication, right? So the implication, the implied message is God will return. He's coming back, which necessitates him, at least not in the visible way we're used to. We, we don't see him. He's not here. So where is he returning to? The temple. Yeah, Jerusalem specifically. So the whole oracle is addressed to Jerusalem. So everything that's being said is, say this to Jerusalem. So in other words, the Lord's going to come back. And if you're in Jerusalem, what direction is he coming from? Where's the wilderness? Do you know from the, Jerusalem? The east. Yeah, it's, in, it's to the east. So there's a, there's literally a point of reference. So in other words, he's coming from the east, which is why in the Christian tradition, all these ancient churches were always built facing east, ad orientum, right? Because that's where the Lord is supposed to come from. Um, so it says, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. One of the cultural and kind of historical things is being implied here is that God is not merely returning He's returning with like a caravan. He needs highway construction, right? There's chariots involved, which is why you have to fill up the valleys and bring down the mountains and cut through the canyons. We're building roads. If you're just hiking, you don't need that. 
but it implies like there is some infrastructure to the Lord's return, right? In a certain sense, right? Yeah. So the the land is going to become level. The rough place is a plain. Um, and then you get verse five, right? And verse, it's it's a it's preceptive to do those things in anticipation of the Lord. Preceptive, right? yeah. Not yeah. only just that it's going to happen, but you have to make these things level and straight and lift yeah. it up and whatnot. To, to usher in yeah. what's going, which is, it's going to become the theme. Actually, we're not, we weren't really going to go into this in this episode, but when Israel does eventually come back to Jerusalem after the exile and rebuild the temple, there's a lot of foot dragging and the, the prophets, what Haggai and Malachi, I think they're the ones who show up during this time. And essentially they're giving the message like, you guys need to rebuild the temple. And they're saying, we don't want to rebuild the temple. We don't even have our own houses yet. Why should we bother with this thing? God abandoned us. He took off. He left. And it's the, uh, I told my seminarians this and, and they didn't get it, which was really sad. Or maybe a third of them got it. But I said it was the field of dreams theology, right? Uh-huh. If you build it, he will come. Yeah. If you build the temple, it will help to usher him in, which I never thought about it in this sense too. But you're right. If you build the highway, that's going to be the sign that like we're ready for you to come. And then it says, once we do this, verse five, then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And remember, the glory of the Lord is not an abstraction here, right? Right. These weren't abstract people. They were concrete. And they associate the glory of the Lord with what? Light and cloud and fire and lightning, Mm -hmm. which are literally, you know, the things from the Exodus story. And so somehow what's being implied is that when God returns, all these things are going to be present and all flesh will see it. It will be a visible sign. So it's not just the Lord's going to come back and you'll have a nice fuzzy feeling in your heart, but no, he's coming back in a way that you can see and experience, which is, again, if you're living in the midst of this and you're like, wow, where is God? I don't see him. This is really good news. This is important, which comes to verse six. So then we have a voice. So we have a messenger and a voice, a voice says cry. And I said, what should I, what am I supposed to cry? And it says, all flesh is grass and it's beauty like the flower of the field. Uh, The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people is grass. All right. So the voice is supposed to cry that all flesh, in other words, all created things is just like grass and like the beauty of the flower, it, it, it fades, it goes away. But here's the thing. This is the book of comfort. So this is supposed to be an oracle of hope, right? So how is this a hopeful oracle? Everything's going to die. Everything's passing. This is not like Ecclesiastes of like vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity. Yeah. It's not that. It is a hopeful oracle. Um, and it, it means something. If you remember that throughout Isaiah, pagan kingdoms, foreign empires are always referred to as flowers and grass, mm. right? It's not just saying, well, everything you have is going to go away, which is not untrue. But it's saying specifically in, in Isaiah 28, it says the northern kingdom of Ephraim, which was beating up on them, was referred to as a flower. In Isaiah 37, the pagan nations are talked about as grass, mm. right? And so it says those things that are lording over you, that are oppressing you, that are kind of beating you down, you can't hold, oh. those are going away. Mm. Those will not last forever. This is not, um, yeah, this is not a forever sort of a thing. So even though Israel is going to be taken into captivity by a very robust empire, seemingly by the name of Babylon, that kingdom's going to pass. Whatever political structure or force you feel like is over you, it's just like grass. It's going to mm. get mowed down. It's going to be the flower that's really beautiful one day, and then a week later, they're dead. Yeah. Which is, that's a really hopeful word. You know yeah. what I mean? Because it's the nature of man-made kingdoms to, to pass, right? Yes. Which Jesus is going to actually pull back in the Sermon on the Mount. He'll come back to some of this imagery of flowers and grass and things passing because this is what's going to allow Israel to be who she was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So in other words, fill up the valleys, level out the hills, welcome him because all of these obstacles, they're passing away and mm-hmm. they don't need to be worried about. Um, okay. So the last thing on that, that I just want to know it, because again, this is, 
this is the story. This is the narrative that the Psalms are singing about, right? That's why yeah. I wanted to start here because it's a reflection on this. So if this is all true, what's the what's the answer? Verse nine. So get you up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God, right? So this is where we get the word gospel, right? Good tidings or glad tidings. In Hebrew, it's the word basar, but in Greek, it's the word euangelion. And the Old Testament was eventually translated into Greek, which is where we get the word gospel, right? Um, which again, we've talked about in previous seasons, but this is not a generic term. This is not an abstraction. It's a very specific thing. What is the gospel? Yeah, it's good news. I think most folks could tell you that. But what's the what's the content of the news? You know, good news is not just sound bites, right? It's not just clickbait. You know, I that's why I am a subscriber to the pillar. Because, you know, we want good news. But good news is also often hard, right? Mm-hmm. It's difficult, it's complex sometimes. But the content of the news is actually matters. And so what is the content of this good news is that God is coming back as king. Behold your God. That's what the news is. You thought God was gone. He's back now. And then it even goes on. Verse 10, behold, he comes with might and his arm is ruling for him, which is actually military language, right? Yeah. Which is why, by the way, when Jesus shows up, there were all of these Jewish people who were completely wrongheaded, believing that there was going to be a war when the gospel was announced. They were he, wrongheaded, but there's a, a rationality to it. Exactly, based upon right. That, you right? can see how they would get there. Yeah, you're like, well, it says that when the gospel is announced, when the Lord comes with chariots, right. it's going to be warfare. Because which, it's there's nothing here that says like, make straight the paths because a guy on a donkey, a guy will ride into town on a donkey. I know that in Micah there is, but Zechariah, Zechariah, but, yeah, right, yeah. but here it's a very different image, right? Well, yes and no, yes okay. and no, and I'm actually happy you said that. So, okay. by the way, Paul also pulls this language of military language uh-huh. to describe what Jesus does on the cross, right? Mm-hmm. So there's this yeah. language of warfare. But then we'll look at what he says in the very next line, verse 11. He will feed his flock like a shepherd, and he will gather his lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young, right? So even in that passage, you do have kind of a weird juxtaposition. Of yeah, totally. Military might, chariots, warfare, armory. Oh, and gentle shepherds with lambs yeah. and sheep and yeah. everything else, which are kind of built. So you can see how in the time of Jesus, people are real confused. They're like, yeah. well, which one is it? Is yeah. it a gentle shepherd or is it a mighty warrior? And of course, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and we're like, oh, yeah, that's what it yes, is. It but, is. But this is this is the question, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, just just real, real quick, uh, turning to, to Isaiah fifty two, which is the other thing that kind of informs this whole section. Isaiah fifty two is kind of doing the same thing, and in fifty two verse three, it says, "For thus says the Lord, you guys were sold for nothing, but you're going to be redeemed without money." In other words, you were all sold off into Babylonian captivity. But God is coming back and he's going to redeem you without money because he doesn't need it. In other mm-hmm. words, right? And then verse four, for um, thus says the Lord, our God, the Lord God, my people went down first into Egypt to sojourn there and then the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. And now, therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, says the Lord, continually all day, my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name and therefore in that day I shall know they shall know that it is I who speak. Here am I, right? And then we get the famous verse seven, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings 
Basar or Evangelion, right? right? So now the image is not so much of a chariot anymore, but now it's almost like a messenger who's like running to tell the news of a victory. Remember in ancient times, this is where marathons came from. Remember this? That to tell uh, the people about the military victory that the king had, you'd send a runner yeah. to go mm-hmm. back and inform yeah. them. So that's literally kind of what's happening here, right? This messenger is running and the poet is looking at the dust kicked up by his feet, right? Announcing that your God reigns. Say this to Zion. Tell him, give him the good news. Spread the message that God is king. Your God reigns. So again, the theme of gospel, good tidings for Israel is always the king has returned. Again, it's never an abstraction. It's never a warm fuzzy in our heart. It's a real visible, tangible reality to restore. The God is coming back to restore everything that is lost. But... If that's the case, I don't think it's coincidental that both John the Baptist and Jesus proclaim at the very beginning of their ministry, repent and believe in the gospel. Turn around and believe in the gospel. Remember what they they both say in, in the gospel of Matthew. It's the first words out of both of their mouth, publicly speaking, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mm-hmm. That's the gospel. That's the good news. You can literally reach out and touch it. Um, not that it will be coming, but that it is here. It's in the, in Greek, it's in the perfect tense, which literally means you can, you can reach out and grab it. And I'm always reminded of that beautiful image in the gospel of Mark of the, the hemorrhaging woman who reaches out and touches the tassel yeah. of Jesus's prayer shawl, yeah. right? That's mm-hmm. what the kingdom is. You can literally reach out and grab it. Yeah. So I say all this um, kind of by way of just preface because this is what book five is singing about. This is what it's reflecting on. Yeah. Um, It's singing what the prophets told Israel, what they have said here, right? So remember that the book of the Psalms finds its final form, its kind of final composition after the exiles came back from Babylon, right? After they came home. So as the people are are returning, they're back in Jerusalem. They're now worshiping in this new temple, a smaller temple. Yeah. Remember, it says the old men wailed and cried because it was so pathetic compared to what it used to be. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, it was built under this prince named Zerubbabel, who is Davidic, but he's not allowed to be a king because there's an oppressive government that won't let him. Um, and they're thinking and they're reading through the prophets, right? And you got these Jewish people back in the kingdom, reflecting on their story under Greek rule with a temple, but it's little and kind of pathetic. God has not returned to it. Nobody saw his presence come back. But they're here and they're praying through the Psalms. They're praying and singing through the Psalter. And actually, the scriptures say that they were dreaming. Remember, it says that when we returned to Zion, it was like a dream. And what are we dreaming of? We're dreaming of the restored kingdom. We're dreaming of a time when the Torah would again be central to the life of Israel, where it would be what we're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And so the, the structure, the pattern of book five is, I think, really clear from the start. This is where this is the trajectory we're going. So that being said, let's turn back to Psalm 107, which we heard beautifully read. Because again, I think it's nice um, to make our way through the Psalms by looking at the seams, right? Yeah. You look at the, the border pieces, the bridge Psalms in a certain sense. So, um, and again, I, I think we can, we've said many times that the the ordering, the arrangement, the editing of the Psalms, which were written all across salvation history. Yeah. There's some that are even attributed to Moses and David and everyone else, but they're put together in a very specific way. And I think the most clear evidence of that editorial arrangement is with the seams because yeah. somebody clearly knows what they're doing. Yeah. So I think last time or last week, we talked a little bit about one, Psalm 106, mm-hmm. the last Psalm of book four, which is kind of a, a meditation where we talked about that idea of Haggah, yeah. Haggahing things. It's kind of medita- a meditation on, on Israel's history, right? From yeah. the Exodus story into the exile. Um, and in Psalm 106, the voice spoken in the state of exile is meditating on the reality of it. 
And he says, this is in Psalm 106, but in verse 47, as it kind of comes to an end, it says, save us. So the last word of book four is save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations so that we may give thanks to thy holy name and glory in thy praise, right? So save us, that, that word save us in Hebrew, it's yasha. And it's where we get the word hoshiana, hoshiana, right? Which means literally save us, right? Mm-hmm. So save us. So notice, notice how book four ends, which is kind of the tail end of the actual narrative. Yeah. Save us. And what? Gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name. So there's three parts to it. Really, really good. Very, very good, James. (laughs) Save us, number one, yesha us, and gather us so that we may give thanks. Give thanks. And and this petition, this is what we call a todah psalm. I mentioned that earlier. It's the Hebrew word for thanksgiving. It's Eucharistia in in Greek. Um, But it's save us so that we can thank you. And again, this is the Jews don't like abstractions. It's literally save us so that we can give you a sacrificial offering of thanks, right? So that we can bring an animal to the temple and sacrifice it to you. It's yeah. it's like saying, you know, Lord, please, please let me win the lottery so that I can give, you know, my favorite apostolate this huge amount of money. Yeah. Let me have this thing so that I can bless you with it or yeah. bless the world with it or whatever, which can almost be a sign of an immature faith. But, yeah. but at the same time. That's it's it's uh, it's it's incumbent upon us. If we're given blessing, you have to give it back. Yeah, right? We have to right. tie it back. If we're given a windfall or a great you know investment or whatever, it, it's it's incumbent on us as Catholics to give it back or as Christians. So that's what they're saying. It's not this abstraction. They're saying bring us back so that we can bring our best cow, our best sheep, or goat as a tithe to you. It's a physical, touchable act. That's yeah. what the toda is. Yeah, not just a word saying, "Oh, thanks, God, we're good to go." So save us so that we may give you a sacrifice in your holy place to your holy name. And that's the note on which Psalm 106 closes book four. Yeah. Save us, gather us so that we can thank you. And then we have this doxology. Remember I mentioned that every book of the Psalter closes with a blessing, a, a better ka in a certain sense. So now this is what I mean with the editorial thing. Look at how Psalm 107 begins. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in their lands from the east and the... Yeah, from all the directions. Yeah. (laughs) But what does it say? Give thanks to the Lord because he's done what? Redeemed, uh, redeemed from trouble and gathered in their in from the land. So what's the prayer of book one of book four is save us and gather us. Right. One oh seven says, Hey, you saved us and gathered us. So it's sort of an epilogue, right? Like we ended the narrative with this prayer that this would happen. And then the next scene is like, it happened. Well, now we'll be here's joyful the about it. Here's the, the reason that what you ask is complicated. Oh, okay. It's like an epilogue that hasn't happened yet. So like narratively, oh, okay. it is like an epilogue. Yeah. But we're also reading this, like when this is compiled, has God gathered Israel no. from the nations no, yet? No, has no. he saved us? No. I mean, kind of. And it's not even a strict no. Yeah. And that's that's actually why this is a beautiful reflection for the Christian life. Because it's it's a kind of like we're back. Like he did gather us. We're not all in Babylon anymore, and we've come back. But it's not all of us. There's still most of us are, are dead or scattered or wherever. Mm-hmm. And he's we have a temple. Like it's it's a kind of right. Yeah. It's like saying, I thank you for letting me live in the resurrection. Yeah. My body is not resurrected right. yet. It's yeah. just not. Yeah. But when I receive the Eucharist, I actually get to experience the resurrection. Yeah. Not in its fullness yet, but like a bit of it. So. 
I don't know. That, that's why that's where I kind of uh, place this in the sort of meditative way. Right? Okay. So it, it's a forward-facing thank you for something that hasn't completely happened yet, mm-hmm. which is which is kind of beautiful in a certain sense. It in the sense that the Old Testament is really truly anticipating the new. Yeah. And not just anticipating it, like living in the new. Yeah. In the same way that Christians, although our bodies have not been resurrected, Jesus yeah. has not come back again. We can live in the new creation every time we receive the sacraments, right? Yeah. That's fair to say, I think, theologically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But again, it's a paradox because we're not fully there, but we can. Sure. But it's not like we're just waiting for it. Like, we're, we're, yeah, we're kind of there. Yeah. So then the Psalms go on to describe all the places that the people were scattered to, which is, which is kind of cool. So you, we were scattered east and west, north and south. We wandered in, in des- somewhere in the desert cities, uh, verse 10. Some were in gloom, some were in prison, some were in affliction, uh, verse 14, we were in darkness and, and more gloom and more bonds, right? So you get this impression that the people of Israel were scattered to all these distant places and God has gathered them from east and west, north and south. Um, therefore, we have the beginning of the regathered Israel, which mm-hmm. are all now kind of huddled in Jerusalem, small as they may be. And they begin to kind of slowly give todah to the Lord, right? Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, we're, we're back. But again, what the what the book is trying to do deal with is the question, okay, does that mean it's over? Does that mean the story's done, Lord? And again, hindsight is twenty twenty, and we know that the Messiah has come, but they're living in this and they're like, well, maybe this is it. Like yeah. maybe this is the answer to everything we hoped for, which is somewhat dissatisfying. But you know, it, it does mean we've been scattered out, now we're regathered, the problem solved, kind of. But the important question is that or not the important question, because we talked about this. I don't think there's any reasonable Jew, certainly any Jewish scholar by the time of Jesus who really thinks the exile's over. Mm. And they know the exile's not over really for two very distinct reasons, very um, tangible reasons. Do you remember what they are? No. They the, are, the, the presence of God is not back in the temple. That's number one. And that's the biggest one. His presence is not there. So how can we possibly be out of exile? Right. And then the second one is, is connected to it. And it's one we talked about a lot throughout this series, that there's no king. Yeah. We don't have a king on the throne because the king is the visible sign of this. It's not yeah. just a nice political analog to yeah. this. It's that this is the sacrament of it. Yeah. And we don't have either of those things. So we're not out of exile yet. Yeah. That's why everything when Jesus is born is at such a fever pitch because they're like, okay, is it time now? We've been waiting for a long time and we've been promised this. So is it now? Is it now? Is it now? But it also just reminds us that this period in, in Israel's history, which is supposed to be bright because we've come back from exile is also really, really dark. And there's just something about living within the paradox. Now, again, there's there's no Jesus Christ yet. Well, there is Jesus Christ. I don't want to speak heresy. The incarnation, not, the incarnation has not happened, so we don't yeah. have the grace that comes with the incarnation. Yeah. But at the same time, there is the similar paradox in knowing that we are people of the resurrection. Jesus has risen from the dead and asked us to share in his divine life. Yeah. But we don't see him fully yet. And he's going to come back someday and lift the veil so we too, although albeit with much more grace, we're still in an in-between. Yeah. So I, again, I think it's a beautiful um, reflection on that. So, so what is this book five going to tell us about Israel's resurrection? So picture these Jews, right? They're in the land of Judah. They're praying. They've got this new temple they just built. What are they going to be praying for? Like what kind of hymns are you going to put in your Psalter in that time period? Well, book five is going gonna, is gonna to celebrate symbols of Israel's identity, mm-hmm. symbols that we, we want and we want to reflect on. So in other words, the hope of book five is that God's going to restore these elements, which made the chosen people so special and so unique and the light to the nations and all yeah. these things. 
And I was trying to think this morning of analogies because I sometimes I get bogged down in analogies. But like what are the symbols of American identity, of being United States, right? The flag. We see the flag is it like it's it's a visible symbol of something. It represents something greater. I, I actually one thing I was thinking this morning when uh, the nine eleven happened. Remember the nine eleven terrorist attacks? I do. There was a lot of bloodshed. Like many many people died, but it wasn't just an attack. I think because okay, where can we kill the most people? The Twin Towers were symbolic yeah, of something. Yeah, the Western financial system, for yeah. sure. Yeah, and it was a symbol, mm-hmm. right? or the Pentagon, right? These yeah, are the symbolic yeah. things. It yeah. wasn't just a numbers game. Yeah. It was what is the symbolic thing that we can see go down yeah. to suggest something deeper, right? Yeah. So th- these are, this is what I mean by, by national symbols. And again, the king of Israel is not just, oh, that's our political leader, and we have a good one or a bad one. You know, th- it's a deeply symbolic thing. Like if the Statue of Liberty was destroyed, that's, yeah. that's deeply impactful. So so those are the things that book five, not those things, but it's the things that book five are, are going to think through. So what are, the, what are the symbols of Israel that book five is going to address? Well, the first one is land. And mm-hmm. that's one we haven't talked a whole lot about, um, but the restoration of the land. And we, we, we see this a lot in, actually in Psalm 107, which, which Ed read. We saw this, that where they come from, where they're coming to, right? So Psalm 107, 108, 109, all kind of touch on this idea of Israel being gathered back into the land. Because mm-hmm. remember, the idea of gathering always implies a place to gather. You can't just gather in a void, yeah. right? So it implies a land. It implies a home. Home is important, right? Yeah. And so we can think of these these particular psalms as psalms about the land, psalms about home. And these three are also psalms about victory over Israel's enemies because not only do they want to be gathered back in the land, but they want to push the foreign invaders out of the land, right? So there's prayers for victory over our enemies because they shouldn't be here. Yeah. So that's the first symbol, right? Land. Then it moves on to the subject of the Davidic king, which again is another really big symbol of Israel's identity. So remember, the Davidic king is sometimes called the Messiah or the anointed one, which means the Christ, literally, right? So um, the I mentioned, I think, weeks ago, that the Davidic Psalms kind of peter out as you go through the Psalter, right? They're kind of concentrated in book one and two, and then they kind of disappear. And all of a sudden in book five, there's a sudden resurgence of them. And you see a bunch of Davidic Psalms again, right? All kind of packed together in book in book five. So they reemerge um, in Psalm 108 and 109. And both of these Psalms, kind of according to their titles, are Psalms of David. And here's what I think is kind of interesting, and we we won't go deep into this, but Psalm 110 and Psalm 118, 110 and 118 are actually Psalms of coronation. So they're coronation Psalms. Um, And you remember we saw back weeks ago uh, in book one and book two, we saw kind of a framing of coronation Psalms. There was the coronation of Solomon, Mm -hmm. and then there was the coronation of Solomon to his son Rehoboam. And they sort of framed everything in the middle. So here we have another one of the, like a mini version of that Mm. in book five, framing this new Davidic king, this new Messiah and these coronation Psalms for again, someone who hasn't come yet. They're coronation Psalms aimed at the future which are are kind of beautiful and they should be kind of familiar to us. I'm just going to read the beginning of Psalm 110, which you probably heard before. It says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your foes. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day that you lead your host from the holy mountains. And it it kind of goes on beautifully. We sing this uh, during the Holy Week liturgy in the the, um, Catholic liturgy. So we've probably heard this before. 
And then the other one I just want to touch on is Psalm 118, which is this very famous messianic psalm, which sort of ends by saying the stone which the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone and has become marvelous in our eyes. You remember that one? Mm-hmm. Um, now there is a, a really beautiful context for this. So, so we, again, we, we, many of us are familiar with these Psalms from the liturgy, these two Psalms, 110 and 118, they frame a collection of Psalms that are called the festal Psalms and the festal Psalms are literally, so Psalm 111 to 117 are the Psalms that you would sing during feasts, during festivals, during Passover, right? Or Pentecost, they would sing this. So Jesus would have sung these during the feasts, during the festivals, framed by psalms literally about him which is it's yeah. fun thinking of him as a little kid yeah. singing these with his family right yeah. which is very beautiful and particularly kind of at the heart of those psalm 113 to 118 we got to say a word about that because these are what are called the famous egyptian hallel psalms the hallel and the hallel uh, is specifically meant to be prayed during the celebration of the passover meal during the mm-hmm. seder feast right mm-hmm. So uh, there's different Jewish traditions. Some sing these before the meal, some after. But traditionally, and in the Gospels, do you remember we read that after the Last Supper on Holy Thursday, or really kind of during the Last Supper, it says the disciples left the upper room singing hymns Mm -hmm. as they were headed to where? Um, The garden. The garden. The garden of the Gethsemane, right? So picture the apostles. They're praying and singing through the Egyptian Hillel. They've just had the Last Supper, this Eucharistic meal that I don't know if they realized fully what was going on, right? They're singing about the great festivals of Israel. They're singing about victory in the time of the Exodus. And they're singing about celebration over Israel's king, over the universe. And they would have closed that long little litany of Psalms with Psalm 118. And they would have sang together the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Yeah. And this is marvelous in our eyes. Headed where? To the garden. To the garden where Jesus is going to be arrested and taken to the crucifixion, literally rejected by the builders. They're probably finishing those lines as the builders are coming to reject him, Yeah, which is just beautiful. And there's a poetic marvel to that. And again, they probably don't recognize the depth to which they were praying these things, but um, it's, it's a pretty powerful, uh, it's a pretty powerful moment, I think. So, okay, so we've seen the land, we've seen the Davidic king, these symbols of Israel that the Psalter is reflecting on, the future of. Um, And then the next kind of component of Jewish identity the Psalter points us to is Psalm 119, which is actually, this is kind of cool. This is the longest psalm. It's also the longest single chapter in the whole Bible, if if you consider each psalm kind of a chapter. It is 176 verses, which is wild. It's a yeah, it's the longest chapter in the whole Bible. So why? Psalm 119 is a long meditation on the beauty of God's Torah, right? And that's the next kind of big symbol. I love this psalm. I actually make my seminarians memorize parts of these, this psalm because the author, if you read it, is just infatuated with the beauty of the scriptures. He's infatuated with God's word, right? It begins by saying, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the way of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but they walk in his ways. Thou hast commanded thy precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping thy statues. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed constantly on your commandments and I'll praise you with an upright heart. And it kind of goes on and on and on. Um, we've repeatedly said that the Jewish people, certainly in this time in history are a concrete people. They, they don't like abstractions, right? And so when they want to communicate the idea of God's instruction 
being relevant to every area of my life, right? Like in English, we might say something like, you know, God's law covers everything from A to Z, yeah. right? In our lives or, you know, uh, uh, alpha to uh, um, omega in Greek or aleph to tau in Hebrew is the idea. Um, so this is what uh, is called an acrostic yeah. poem, which I'm sure you've heard before, right? So you would, if you really wanted to, to express this notion, you might compose a song about God's Torah where each line literally begins with each subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet, right? Mm-hmm. So in, in the Hebrew, Psalm 119 begins with Aleph, and then it goes to Bet, and then it goes on and on every letter of the Hebrew alphabet all the way down to Tau. And some Bibles, uh, mine, the one I have in front of me doesn't do it. There are some Bibles that actually have the Hebrew letter printed in the margins, which I think is kind of cool. Uh, my NIV study Bible actually does this. Mine just have the names of the letters. Oh, it has those. Oh, cool. That's very cool. Yeah, see, mine, the one I have in front of me doesn't have that, but I love that because it kind of points you to this reality. Um, but again, what's the point? It, it's reminding us. And again, remember, this is a time where we're really hoping and praying for the restoration of all this stuff, and we haven't really seen it yet. But it's it's desperately praying and meditating on God's instruction spanning my whole life. Okay, so Everything for the I symbols, do. we've got the land, the crown, the Torah. Land, crown, Torah, right? right. Oh, by the way, back in Psalm 19... I mentioned this. It's, I don't know if there's a numeric connection. 19 and 119, it said that the Lord's instruction was tamin. Mm. In other words, all-encompassing, okay. right? From the rising of the sun in the east to the setting of the west, right? It covers everything. So we've got two more symbols to go. Okay. Did I and say five? You did. Okay. Do we have that's five? What it is, is that true? Yeah, it is. Okay. Well, we've got to take a break, and then we're going to talk about those two more symbols. Okay. Hi, everyone. My name is Kate Oliveira, and I produce this show, Sunday School. There is so much to love about this podcast. Scott offers such refreshing insights about scripture. A lot of his insights have helped me feel more comfortable with the Bible, and I hope they've helped you too. If you enjoy listening to Sunday School as much as I do, I'd like to ask you to please consider becoming a paying subscriber to The Pillar. The support of paying subscribers makes projects like Sunday School possible. We have several subscription plans available, including one that's only $5 a month. If you're already a paying subscriber, you're awesome. And maybe you could consider gifting a subscription to someone else. For more information, visit PillarCatholic.com slash subscribe. That's PillarCatholic.com slash subscribe. Thanks, guys. And we're back for the final segment of our final episode of our Psalm season of Sunday school uh, with our Psalm sage, Dr. Scott Powell. And, uh, oh, that's fun. Um, Psalm sage, P.S., Scott Powell, S.P. So you're, Ooh, how about that? that? That's a, uh, what do you call that? I don't know what you call that. A palindrome. A, a palindrome. Yeah, yeah, it is. So, it's palindromic. Yeah, it is. We have talked about the three sort of symbols which yeah. are um, critical in book five, these praise psalms of book five of the Psalter. We talked about... The, the now what psalms. Yeah, the now yeah. what psalms, what's coming, and what are these symbols of Israel that help us to know ourselves and our identity in Israel. And so we have the land, the crown... The Torah. Yeah. And what do we got next? The next one is the temple. The temple. Which again, they sort of have a temple. And the focus of that is Psalm 120 through 137. Mm -hmm. Um, 120 through 134 are these psalms that are known as the Psalms of Ascent. Mm -hmm. So they're literally, yeah, the climbing, the step psalms in a certain sense. Um, And and that's just not just a nice idea. Literally, in other words, 
these are the psalms that pilgrims would pray or sing as they ascended the steps into the temple, mm, coming okay. close to the glory of God, up, up Mount Zion. And uh, the reason I, I point that out is that this is, in a certain sense, how the liturgy of the word and the Catholic mass is designed. If you think of Sunday mass, right, we have a reading and a song, reading, song, reading, and they're meant to mirror the songs of ascent. So we have an Old Testament reading, typically in the first reading, not always. And then we sing the responsorial psalm. Yeah. And then usually we have, well, in Sunday, we have the second reading, which is an epistle, an epistle. which is getting closer to God. So Old Testament, right? We're, we're, we're kind of seeing God from a distance where he's been, what he's done. Then we sing a psalm and we get a little closer in the epistle typically. And then we sing another psalm, which is the Alleluia, yeah. which actually is a psalm. Yeah. And we take another step. And that actually brings us into the gospel. Oh, and which that's is how the, the songs of ascent are, is just yeah. singing a song and going up a step. As you're going closer. But, but wow. not just going up a step. They're going toward the presence of God yeah. in the uh -huh. temple. Yeah. Which is what we're doing in the mass. Yeah. So that's kind of where that comes from. Oh, wow. From, really? Is, I think that, very is beautiful. Is that actually where that comes from? Or is that I your hope so. Jesus into what's happening in the mass? Like, I'm not trying to. No. But I mean, do you think that the uh, church fathers, as they sort of unpacked what the liturgy would be and that the development of the liturgy came, that was something that was in their minds? Well, in the Latin liturgy, there's a technical term called the, the graduale, the gradual psalms. Yeah. So, uh, so that's what makes me think that there is an intentionality to that. Oh. So, so yeah, I, I, to wow. some degree, I think it's there. I hope it's there. Okay. And so, yeah. those, those psalms of ascent for the liturgy of the sacrifice of the temple for um, Jewish people in Israel, they, the sacrificial element of their worship, sacrificing yes. an animal, would have been preceded by the Psalms of Ascent. Well, yes and no. I mean, if you're just a normal Jew, you're, you're making pilgrimage to Jerusalem where something would be offered but on your something behalf. something that will be offered on your behalf, you paid to have offered. Yeah, so you got to go there. So you, you, you have go to go there to do you, it. Yeah, you see yeah. your thing be offered? Or is it well, just you sort would of buy in, it, and then you would give it. it to the priest. So, so yes, I mean, you can't be in there. You don't actually But I mean, you it. know that your thing is going. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. So yeah, that's there right. Is, so the... the relation between liturgy of word and liturgy of Eucharist does have a sort of footprint in yeah, I think so. um, liturgy of ascent and liturgy of sacrifice. Yeah, I think so. Well, I, th I, think it's, I think it's there. Okay. Again, I, to what degree it's, it's concrete and um, intentional? To some degree, certainly, but I, I think it's... Dr. Bob, you know what will make me proud if some <laughs> y budding young scholar listening to this show decides to write a dissertation oh, on this and he dedicates it to Sunday school? Been. I'm sure many have been. I don't know. I don't well, know. You we'll never find know. out. Okay. You never know. Okay. Um, so this is 120 through 137, right? Mm -hmm. These psalms about the temple. Psalms about the temple. So land, Torah, crown, temple. Yes. And then the very last connection, collection, mm -hmm. we have a return to the Davidic king. So it's almost a, a book ending, right? Okay. We're back with the king. And so Psalm 138 to 145, celebrate the Davidic king, celebrates the Davidic king, right? So okay. and there's a number of these kind of underscoring themes of a uh, theme of praise in 138, a theme of God's presence in 139, of salvation from our enemies in 140, but how the king will do these things. So again, it's really stressing the king mm -hmm. and it comes back to the symbol of the king uh, for the fifth chunk of Psalms in a certain sense. Um, and then it concludes and book five, uh, remember again, we've mentioned that every book of the Psalter concludes with a blessing, right? Kind of a final doxology mm -hmm. book five also concludes with a blessing, but for book five, it's not enough to just put one verse about what God's going to do. Right? So in other words, when God restore once and for all, when God restores the land, 
which is the new creation for us, right? When he restores the king, who is Jesus incarnate, when he restores the temple, which is the church, when he restores the Torah, which is his word, not only made written, but made flesh among us, right? One verse doesn't do it for the Psalter to point to this. And so what do you have to do? You have to sing five Psalms, which all begin with the word Alleluia. So Psalm 145 to 150 are sometimes called the Alleluia Psalms for that reason. So you have these five hymns, these five Psalms that constitute a massive blessing. Because again, it's, it's, it wants to close with a bang in praise for what all God is going to do. So, okay. Final word. What, what, what's the, so what, what do we take away from this? Right. Um, what would it have meant? Do you think for a Jewish person to pray these Psalms over and over and over again? I mean, think of the amount of time, even from the end of the exile, which is what the 400s I think mm-hmm. to the time of Jesus. That's longer than the existence of our country, right? Mm-hmm. That they waited after the exile ended for the exile to actually end. Yeah. So festival after festival, year after year, prayer service after prayer service, synagogue after synagogue. And you imagine these Jews gathered in Jerusalem in the state of exile. We're kind of home, but we're kind of not. We have no king. The land isn't really ours. The northern tribes are still scattered, who knows where, to the nations. And they're praying these psalms, 1 through 150, over and over and over again with your mom and dad, with your grandparents, with your children when they're born. What would it do for you? I think what it's meant to do in its intention is to solidify the family story, but also to give this desire for what these things actually say. You're saying and singing things that have not, you've not fully experienced yet. We haven't really tasted this. And I think it would make you desperately desire, you know, if you're singing again and again and again about a king you don't have, it makes you want a king, right? Yeah. I, I would presume, and you're singing psalms about the Torah and gathering together, but all God's people are still scattered, some living really pagan, sinful lives. Yeah. It would make you really hunger for that, right? Yeah. So the Jews praying these psalms would have, I think, had to internalize, number one, the story, where we've come from, but also the sadness of what we've lost, the sadness of what we don't have, yeah. and the hope for what is to come, right? And so all these things that we've been looking at in book five – um, are meant to condition the people of God with a hope for their eventual restoration. They're meant yeah. to shape our lives, to shape how we think about the past, how we think about our family, how we think about our place in the world. Um, and for Catholics, again, the so what of this, for Catholics, the liturgy is supposed to have this role. That's what the liturgy is supposed to do. So we have the saying, right? Lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of praying is the law of believing, which simply means, you know, we're supposed to believe what we pray. And if you want to know what we believe as Catholics, you're supposed to look at our worship, not yeah. just like the big theological texts that we've written. Those are good. Yeah. I think it was, was it Pius the. 11th, I think, said that the church teaches more effectively in the liturgy than any papal document. Mm-hmm. That's meant to be the place where this is shapes us, gestures, colors, songs, smells, bells, like all the stuff, right? Yeah. That's meant to be the place where this is all internalized. Um, so I think if we want to understand this place, this weird place we live in history, right? God has set us free from evil and from sin. He has risen from the dead. He has changed the world. We get to taste it. We get to live in it, but we still haven't experienced it in its fullness yet. The liturgy is the place that's meant to remind us where we've come from, but also give us this profound hope of what is still yet to come. Yeah. Which which makes me marvel at complacency in the liturgy, right? Complacency of like, well, this is this is who we are, rather than this thirst of like, I man, I want to see this in its fullness. Yeah. 
I don't know. That's what I've been reflecting on um, as we kind of close out the Psalter. What do you think we're going to look at in the next season of Sunday School? Ooh, I'm excited. So next season, we're going to be looking at one of the most thought over and uh, confusing books in the Bible, the book of Romans. That's a hard one. That's theologically rich, theologically complex, and we're going to get into it, huh? Yeah, but it's cool. There's a lot of theological complexity, but it's important to remember this is a letter that's written to average everyday schmoes in a pew in an actual church. Well, I'm looking forward to it already, although it'll be, we've got to make it so it'll be (laughs) that is true yeah yeah okay well uh thanks so much and listeners thanks so much for being with us this season sunday school is a production of pillar media and ed and jd production we're going to close out with some psalms from the pillar zone ed condon but first let me just give the credits our sunday school teachers dr scott powell i'm your host jd flynn our excellent executive producer who keeps this whole sunday school project on track is uh is the very talented kate Oliveira, and you our listeners are also the ones who make it happen so um go to pillarcatholic.com and become a subscriber and we're going to close Um, hopefully with a very prayerful reading of uh, what psalms from our own Ed Condon. Psalm 145 through 150. Psalm 145 through 150. I hope that you can listen to these and listen to them prayerfully and that uh, God will be present to you in his living word. Take it away, Ed. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him, He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God, who makes heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. 
The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Our God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like the ashes. He hurls down his crystal of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created, and he established them for ever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people, praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in its maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy in their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats, and a two-edged sword in their hand, to execute vengeance on the nations, and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains, and their nobles with fetters of iron, 
to execute on them the judgment written. This honor is for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud and clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.